Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, episode 21, Blood Brothers. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Just as a heads up, if my voice sounds a little bit off, I am still recovering from a cold I had last week, but let's go ahead and get into our coffee tasting. Today, we're going to be trying Kona coffee from Hawaii, one of the most popular coffees in the world, arguably the best coffee in the world. So what I did was I had a uh, hot coffee and an iced coffee, and we're basically going to compare the difference between the two. So the hot one definitely has a very sweet smell. It's uh, a little roasty, getting a little bit of like a nutty flavor to it. Try tasting it. Very smooth coffee. It's not very bitter. Doesn't really have much of a sourness. There's not a whole lot of acidity. Just all around, it's actually just a very light cup of coffee. Um, I'm assuming a medium roast. And I'm gonna try the iced coffee. Kind of see the difference. So when you're smelling it, you're not gonna get as much smell just because it's not hot. Uh, but even on this one, I actually still get a little bit of that smooth aroma from it. There's a bit of a, a roastiness as well. This one I'm almost getting a little bit more of like a, like a fruity smell from. That's interesting. It actually subtles out a lot of the flavors. Like it's already a very smooth coffee, but as an iced coffee, it definitely neutralizes a lot of the more heavy aspects. So you don't really get any bitterness on this one. Like it just tastes like a very sweet almost flavor. Definitely all around, this is a very good cup of coffee, and it's going to feature later in our video. Going into this episode, I wanted to try and come up with a plan for how best to organize the episodes moving forward. My initial plan was to go by decades, so this episode would be the 1920s, next episode the 30s, and so on. However, I realized there were important historical events going on during these periods which more accurately drive our story, but sort of cut through decades and even across each other. What is he going on about, you may be asking yourself. What I'm saying is, events like the Prohibition in America and the Great Depression and World War II on a global scale affected coffee far more than the decades they cover. Now, your next question may be, why is this important at the start of the episode? Well, because I was doing my research for this episode, and I realized it was going to be far longer than I anticipated. So, I had a decision to make. I didn't want to make a near-hour-long episode, as this would both be difficult for me to edit and for all of you to listen straight through. So I was left with the choice to simply delete everything I'm about to share with you this episode, or I could simply give this abbreviated episode. Debating this, I realized something. What if I use this episode to share all of the research I have done that never made it into any episode? So, without further ado, here goes episode 21. During the 16th and 17th century, we find a shift taking place in Europe. Leaders like Germany's coffee hater, Frederick the Not-So-Great, wanted to increase exports and decrease imports because of competition over wealth. 
this competition was known as mercantilism. So mercantilism, as a result, replaced feudalism. This is a larger part of why Frederick wanted to prevent his people from drinking coffee, because Germany didn't have any colonies which grew it. So buying coffee meant Germans were giving their money to countries like the Netherlands and France. Speaking of France, during their blockade on England, we find Russia trading behind Napoleon's back under the Continental System. The Continental System is what was going on during the Napoleonic Wars in which Napoleon wanted to prevent England from being traded goods from other parts of Europe. As a result, Russia couldn't afford to stop trading with England, and because of this, the Continental System fell to crushing England. This is what led to Napoleon's failed invasion of Russia, and as a result, his forced exile. After which, Napoleon stated, quote, When I think that for a cup of coffee, with more or less service in it, they check that hand that would set the world free. End quote. This quote makes someone wonder what Russia was trading behind Napoleon's back. Was it a desire for coffee that led to trade between the two countries? Was coffee responsible for Napoleon's demise? Well, I don't want to overly assert this historical possibility as fact, considering I was unable to find evidence of coffee being traded between the two countries. And in fact, I was unable to even find evidence of this quote outside of the book that I read it from. Periods of time often overlap, such as colonialism and mercantilism. For example, we can see colonialism's effect on coffee shortly after Frederick's death with the repercussions of France's use of slaves to grow coffee in their colonies. Let me set the scene. The slaves lived in inhuman conditions, within windowless huts, underfed and overworked. One Frenchman who traveled to Saint-Domingue even noted coffee caused suffering for both indigenous people who lost their lives and their lands so the Africans could suffer producing European sugar and coffee. As a result of the harsh treatment, the slaves of San Domingo revolted. We already talked about the revolt in detail, but now we can look at the aftermath of it. Following the initial revolt, they formed the nation of Haiti, and it didn't take long for the new government to seek financial revenue, which it did by returning to coffee exporting, beginning in 1801. The state was too poor to support fair wages, so turned to, in essence, serfdom, like that of medieval Europe. Their system allowed workers to live on state-owned land and work for small wages with some health care. Due to the loss of Haiti, France needed a new source of coffee. This was compounded by the continued blockade England established on France during Napoleon's conquest across Europe. So, France began using sugar beet to replace sugarcane and attempted to substitute coffee with chicory. Chicory, when roasted and brewed, looks similar to coffee and even shared a bitter taste with it, but lacked the aroma, body, and caffeine of coffee. The French, though, continued to use chicory even after this, mixing it with coffee. This tradition followed many of the French who moved to New Orleans. Luckily, this chicory coffee would serve them well during the American Civil War, after the Union blockaded the port of New Orleans, preventing coffee from getting into the Confederate South. 
The army was actually used to having coffee as part of the rations, as President Jackson replaced soldiers' alcohol rations with coffee back in 1832. This was due to complaints by commanding officers of men being insubordinate and getting into accidents from overindulgence. So by the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, coffee had been well established among the military. During the war, coffee was typically drunk black, unless they came across condensed milk. But this was rather expensive. So while Union soldiers had coffee, it was Confederate soldiers who had southern tobacco. So they often traded coffee and tobacco with one another. The Dutch stepped into the vacuum left by the revolution in Haiti with their colonies of Java and Ceylon, known today as Sri Lanka. The Dutch hardly treated their Javanese and Sinhalese slaves better than the French did, but they at least held back from raping them and even gave them a tiny wage. Still though, the Dutch made their money on coffee cells off the backs of Javanese workers, doing little to grow the coffee themselves. The British eventually captured the island of Ceylon in 1850 and increased the amount of coffee grown. By the 1860s, the island was the largest coffee exporter in the world. Its glory would be short-lived because in 1869, coffee leaf would affect Ceylon's coffee, and over time it would spread across Asia and Africa, devastating the coffee industry. This devastating disease, which began decimating coffee plants in 1869, forced many countries to adapt in order to survive. Shortly after the fungus was discovered in Sri Lanka, a solution was found in 1898 from a new form of coffee out of the Belgian Congo. This coffee would become known as Robusta, a lower grade of coffee often found in Africa, Indonesia, and India. And on a side note, Robusta was actually noted by Europeans in Uganda back in 1862, seven years before leaf frost first appeared. Ugandan natives from the Baganda tribe separated two beans from a coffee cherry and smeared it on themselves, declaring a blood brotherhood. In any case, leaf frost led to a need for Robusta, so this coffee began being grown around the world. It is a very hardy plant, not only because of its resistance to leaf rust, but also because it can be grown at lower elevations, handle higher temperatures, and it grows coffee faster. Realistically, the only reason it didn't overtake Arabica is because of its harsh, bitter taste. The Dutch developed a taste for it after controlling Indonesia for years, but most other consumer countries preferred Arabica, or at least a mix of the two in order to lower the price, while also preserving some level of flavor. By the time World War I broke out, much of Asia and Africa had switched to tea production as a result, and by 1920, Indonesia's port of Java was producing 80% Robusta coffee, a problem to the New York Coffee Exchange. The exchange determined Robusta was, quote, a particularly worthless bean, end quote, and was worried people may confuse Java's Robusta coffee with the term Java, which implied a higher quality coffee. So they decided to ban it from the exchange as a result. Brazil, for its part, similarly banned Robusta beans after a few attempts to grow it for fear of importing leaf rust into the country. In 
Before we move on from robusta beans, I do want to bring up an interesting thought to consider. Around the same time in the 1920s, a different fungus began devastating a different fruit tree, the banana. For those of you who don't know, the banana we eat today is different than the banana that was primarily eaten during the 1950s. But as a result of Panama disease, the dominant banana variety, known as Grosse Michel, was wiped out. This banana was considered to be more tasty and harder to bruise than the bananas we commonly find at the grocery store today. So although we know with hindsight the Arabica bean will not be completely destroyed by leaf rust and overtaken by Robusta beans, it is interesting to consider a what-if scenario on what coffee would be like today if Robusta were the primary form of coffee. And if The Last of Us has taught me anything, it's that fungi adapt and could always take over the world with an army of zombie goats. Or at the very least, coffee leaf rust could eventually take out Arabica coffee plants for good and leave us with only Robusta. Now, speaking of goats, let's check back in with Ethiopia to see what's been going on in the birthplace of coffee since we last left off. Coffee was only exported in minute amounts by this point, largely due to their king Menelik, who allowed corruption in the country, which by this point had extended down to the custom agents. Yemen was similarly down in its ability to produce coffee. This was all despite both countries producing some of the finest coffee from their respective ports of Harar and Mocha. Instead, coffee in other parts of the world had become new standards of quality. Jamaica Blue Mountain was one such place, as we talked about in our coffee tasting in the last episode, British consumers actually drink most of Jamaica's supply of coffee, as well as much of Costa Rica, while Americans and Europeans by and large began to desire Kona coffee from Hawaii, as we tried at the start of this episode. Interestingly, coffee began to be grown again in Africa, but now in British East Africa. It wasn't even imported from Ethiopia, but was instead brought over in 1901 from Bourbon by missionaries on the island. The island had actually shifted to British control in 1810 following the Napoleonic Wars, and was now known as Reunion. Jamaica coffee was also brought over to East Africa, and, despite the arrival of coffee leaf rust, coffee production in Kenya and Uganda doubled up until the outbreak of World War I. Following the war, however, coffee production continued, and was now aided by the development of British railroads. Brazil, for its part, was still dominating the world market for coffee, keeping the prices low even as other countries tried to create higher quality beans. Colombia and Central America increased production of their mild coffees, which were selling at a higher cost by this point. To keep up, Brazil was forced to finance a second valorization in 1917, as wartime coffee prices went down. This time, it worked out very well as coffee prices jumped up the following year after the war came to an end. This all coincided in Brazil with a frost that hit the country, restrictions from the U.S., and limited shipping. Interestingly, though, while this batch of valorized coffee sold for a pretty penny, coffee by 1918 no longer accounted for half of Brazil's total exports. The war led their economy to produce a large array of agricultural goods, placing coffee at around one-third 
of their total exports. Further, industrialization took off in the country during and in the years following the war. This new industrialization led to more business for textiles and other foods, leading to, as Mark Pendergast put it, a decline in the absolute power of the coffee barons. Colombia, after a half-century of repeated civil wars, finally came together to become a massive competitor on the coffee market shortly before the war. After the war ended, it truly became a giant on the coffee market. Other countries, like Guatemala, were able to boom after the war, and their dictator Cabrera sold back the confiscated coffee farms to their former German owners. To a smaller extent, countries like Haiti and Indonesia were able to regain their former coffee industry as a result of the war's demand for coffee. So, with all of these different regions, what did consumers want? Well, one man, J. Walter Thomas, conducted a survey in 1924 that found 87% of housewives believed flavor was the most important factor in choosing a coffee. Harry Long, a retailer in Texas, found all housewives could be separated into four categories. The first was the know-it-all about coffee, who cannot find anything to suit her cultivated taste. So he suggests improving the coffee and you improve the meal. Next is the bride of a few months who knows very little about coffee, but wants to find a good blend that she and her husband can rely on. So in this case, he suggests a successful selection of the coffee that goes into every morning cup will arrive on the day when any blend is first purchased. Which sounds a bit confusing, but it seems like he's saying the best coffee you will have is after the bag is freshly opened. The third are those that are satisfied with their existing coffee. And finally, can you name your coffee? Or is it one of those many unknown brands that comes from the store at the order of your cook? Long's method was to play on insecurities around a housewife's worth, and since coffee represented their household status, it was key to making sales on higher quality coffee. Coffee became a mainstream household item following World War I, but by the outbreak of World War II, coffee was recorded as being a drink in 98% of American homes. Even the Great Depression from 1929 to 1939 could not slow down the growing desire for coffee. Part of this was due to the period we will cover next episode, the Prohibition in the United States. But an even bigger event is coming up in our narrative, something which will force every corner of the globe into war. World War II is on the horizon. As we close out this episode, I want to thank all of you for your patience. I was recently cast as Brad in a production of Rocky Horror Picture Show, so that has been taking up a lot of my time. Finally, I got caught up on research, but then I ended up going on a vacation for a week. This week, I was ready to record this episode and, unfortunately, got sick and lost my voice. So instead, I used that time to begin creating YouTube shorts and TikToks from content on this podcast series to help bring in new listeners. With that said, if you've not gone on our YouTube channel or the newly released TikTok account, then definitely give them some support by watching some videos, giving some likes, and subscribing. If you know anyone who might be interested in a YouTube or TikTok account on history, then please recommend it to them as this helps our series gain further traction. This show is written and produced by me, Eris Zaffer, 
If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in the series, while getting access to members' episodes, access to transcripts of the show, and a chance to win merch. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way to say thank you, this month we will be giving away a copy of the book Coffee, A Drink for the Devil by Paul Crystal to one of our Patreon members. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And make sure to share it with your family and friends. To close, here's a quote from T.S. Eliot. I have measured out my life in coffee spoons. Thank you.